Well, obviously one of the things that today marks is the first anniversary of the fires. And the truth is, is that the devastation and destruction of those fires was overwhelming. And we've talked about how we've seen God work even in the midst of that devastation and destruction. 5,000 homes in Sonoma County alone were destroyed, 3,000 of which were here in Santa Rosa. In Sonoma County, there were 23 deaths as a result of the fire. And several more that were maimed, permanently burned, left with scarring, and, and still in recovery. And the truth is, is that questions often arise. And we hear these questions during that time of devastation and destruction is, where is God? And, and if God is so loving, how does he let this tragedy happen? Or how is God glorified through something like this? See, truth be told, too often our answers to those questions are insufficient as well. You see, even in tragedy, God is at work and is revealing his glory. His ways are not our ways, and yet we can be confident that he is going to reveal his glory. And as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel this morning, it's actually fitting that the Lord's brought us to this chapter this morning, chapter 5. You see, through tragedy and affliction, God exposes the true desires of our heart, demonstrating our need for Him and His mercy. Regardless of where we are, regardless of the reason for it, tragedy and affliction always reveal what's really going on inside of our heart. So let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 5. We're going to be doing the whole chapter. It's just 12 verses. And as we read this passage this morning, as we look at this together, be reminded here that as a part of this scripture, as a part of what's occurring here in Samuel, we actually have the blessing of knowing that Jesus has come, that he's died for us, and there's a hope that we have in Christ. And this is what it says in verse 1. It says, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, 
Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. You may be seated. The truth is this. That God's glory destroys the power of idols. Drawing people to seek him and his mercy in the midst of destruction. God's glory destroys the power of idols, drawing people to seek him and his mercy in the midst of destruction. Glory, power, mercy. In God's glory, we experience his power and we experience his mercy. When Ben left off two weeks ago, the, the week before man camp, we were looking at 1 Samuel 4, and if you'll recall, God was essentially being treated as a genie in a bottle. The Israelites believed that if they simply had the ark, that they would win the war. It didn't matter about their obedience and their honoring of God. It was simply related to, if we just have the ark in the midst of our presence, we're going to win. In fact, God had so showed himself previously to that, that the Philistines were fearful when the ark was brought in, they thought, we're going to die. But something happens. God is not going to reward the Israelites' sin. He's not going to honor their use of him as some sort of magic tool or view of when I need God, God will be there, but I'm going to go do my own thing until I need him for a moment. God wasn't the magic pill that could be called upon at any point To give them what they desired when they were experiencing the consequences of their sin. And so the ark of God was, in essence, treated like kryptonite. So long as it was in their presence, they could defeat any army, no matter how strong. It was the the thing that they could set in front of somebody so they believed and that God would just do whatever they wanted. But in fact, in an act of judgment against the Israelites, God allows them to be defeated, and the ark is captured by the Philistines. And so in turn, the Philistines believe that their god, Dagon, has defeated the living God. As verse 2 tells us, the, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now, the ark of God was supposed to be the physical representation of God's glory amongst his people. 
But now the ark was serving as a trophy before the idol of Dagon. In fact, the language there in Hebrew actually suggests that he wasn't placed beside Dagon, but he was placed beside or next to and below. That he was going to be a servant of this god, Dagon. Now, Dagon was an idol that had an interesting image. He was half man and half fish. And the Philistines believed, or the Ashdodites specifically believed that the reason and he was created as half fish was that he represented a spawning of sorts. And so all good things would come from Dagon. It was this blending, uh, you could call it in essence kind of like a merman. Not a mermaid, but a merman, right? Half fish, half man. And Dagon is considered... To be the father of Baal. The idolatrous father of Baal. This erecting of idols down the lines of generations. Now God was placed in this position of submission to a man-made image. To a man-made thing. And Psalm 86, 8 through 10 says this. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So the God, the creator of all, is placed in submission to one of his creation. But not even that. It's, he's placed in submission to a dead created thing. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, God will not reveal his power on behalf of his sinning people, but he will not allow his glory to be mocked or his name to be defiled by a smirking enemy. The lords of the Philistines added the ark to their other religious relics in their heathen temple and put Jehovah on the same level as their fish god Dagon. Well, Galatians 7, excuse me, 6, 7 says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So even in this foreign land, even in this place where God is being mocked, it says here that God will not be mocked. We serve a God who protects his glory. Even in situations that we're standing by wondering, how are you going to do this, God? God is at work protecting his glory. And so how does God protect his glory in a rebellious land amongst rebellious people? Well, essentially God reveals ways in which he protects his glory in the face of idolatry. Now notice what happens here. In verse 3 it says this. It says that, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now here was this idol that was present in front of them, and now it had been above God, and now it's below the ark of God, face down. In fact, the word in Hebrew here is the same word that's used for adoration. It's a positional statement that Dagon was in adoration 
the ark of God or of God. So, in essence, Dagon was at the foot of God worshiping. Now, the interesting thing is, what do the people do? They go back in and they put them back up. We don't know how that happened, but put them back up. In our own lives, we have idols. We have things that are replacing what God needs to replace. For some, it may be acceptance. It may be a fear of man. It may be the desire to to please and to be liked by the people that you're around. It may be lust. The thing that you go to to find companionship. To find value. It, It may be money where you find your security. It may be comfort. We can list all kinds of idols, the very things that come into our lives that become a substitute for what only God can provide. When God's saying that there shall be no other gods beside me in the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, What he's really articulating there is that not just that we're thinking of these statues, these idols, but it's also saying, listen, what are the things in your life that take the place of me? Where where do you find your security? Where do you find your comfort? Where do you find your peace? By definition, we can't find peace within ourselves. We're sinners who are fallen, that are broken. The Lord says that we are broken, that we are are still waiting to be fully redeemed. It's only in Christ that we find our peace. And so these idols can serve in our life. Idols can be apathy. I can so choose to be lazy, to not work. Idols can be anything that rob us of finding our full value in Jesus. Either. Now notice in verse 6, something else has happened. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now here's what's unique about this. Our immediately draw, because of our sense of self, I think at times... Our immediate draw is, gosh, man, this Dagon God, yeah, he's getting slammed pretty hard. And the people over here, they're going through tumors. Now, what's interesting is God is actually revealing his power over all things in this moment. He's revealing his power over all other gods, and he's revealing his power over humankind or over mankind. And so one of the ways that God protects His glory in the face of idolatry is that he demonstrates his power over all gods and mankind. You see, when we experience or witness God's power over all things, it's to move us to a place of submission. When we find that we no longer have control over our life, it's to move us to a place of submission.
There are times on the battlefield as you watch, and I was watching this, the show recently about uh, attacks that were taking place in Afghanistan. And these American troops were on the ground in Afghanistan, and they would come under attack from these, these kind of people that were sitting in hiding. And they wouldn't really necessarily be ambushed. They were just being pot shot at. And guys were dying. Guys were being injured. And because of some different rules of engagement that existed there, the commanders actually said, listen, there's not a whole lot we can do here, but we can do a show of force. And so they brought these fighter jets right in over the top of these guys, and everything stopped. When we see God at work and we see his power, that we are actually out of control, out of a place where we think that we should be, that's to bring us to a place of submission before him. See, the result of idolatry is a place of death. The result of sin is death. Idols only lead to death. And yet, when God comes in and knocks our idols down, when he shows us that we're not as in control as we think, that's an act of mercy that God is demonstrating towards us. This is actually an act of mercy on the Ashdodites. Job 26, 7 through 14. I just want to read that for a moment. It speaks of the God that we serve. And this is what it says. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has ascribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his wind the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? This is the God that we serve, the creator over all. Even to Job, he reminded Job who he was. This God that we serve. Psalm 147, 4 through 5 says this. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. See, God shows us that the pursuit of other gods is worthless and fruitless. When we see that those idols in our life have no power, no power of God, they're worthless and they're fruitless. It does not satisfy and it does not bring life. There was no life to be found in Dagon. And in the idols that we serve, there is no life in it because once you attain an idol, it never satisfies. Where do you find your security? Is it in people? Is it in money? Listen, people are never going to make you feel fully secure. And money can always be lost. The security that is in both is fleeting. 
the true security that we have is in Christ. Knowing that God is directing and leading. The true security that we have is in him. The past few days, I've been in Idaho. I left real quick, did a really fast trip for two days to Idaho to deal with some things with my dad. And Friday night, as we were wrapping things up and trying to get this, 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 this trust dealt with, and we met with this banker. And he began sharing about things that were going on in his life, this banker. And he said, I don't know about you, but I don't know how you feel about praying, but I was praying with my wife. I said, yeah. And so he had proceeded how, as a banker, he is a just everything has to have its, 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 its T's uh, uh, crossed and its I's dotted, and everything's got to be in order. And he said, listen, I felt led by the Lord to move our family from Lancaster to Boise, Idaho. He said, I took a $6,000 pay cut to do this. And he said, we came, it's been the best thing in the world, and I had nothing to go to. I just, we just knew that the Lord was moving us here. He said, it was the first time in my life that I'd taken a step of faith in this way. Listen, when God is with us, when we understand that God is the one who has the power and is in control, the idols mean nothing. That security in that moment becomes fleeting because God becomes the security, not the idol. Now notice here how the Philistines respond. The Philistines respond in a bizarre way, don't they? Or maybe it's a way that we can sometimes respond. It says here that the Philistines came and it says, And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? Interesting. They take Dagon first, and after he's been prostrate before the ark of God, they lift him back up. Just go back there. I don't really care what just happened. I don't need to know what happened. Just get back up there. Have we ever done that in our life? Where we've seen God work and God exposes something in our heart and we just go, yeah, don't care. Get back up there. They see God's power and what do they want to do? They want to remove him. Get God out of here. Get them out. Move them on. All I know is he's making me really uncomfortable and hurt, and I don't want any part of it. You see, they actually reject God's truth and continue in their idolatry. But notice that God doesn't stop there. God continues to press in, and in we see here in verse 4 when Dagon falls to the ground, it says that his hands are broken off and his head is broken. At this particular time, what would happen is the Philistines would actually go through the army that they had beaten and they would take the heads and the hands off the soldiers that they had killed. And they would bring them back as a sign of victory. God was making a clear point here. Your idol has nothing. What's interesting in this as well is that we see that this idol gets completely broken apart. And in the same way, 
the towns that it's going to, at Gath and Ekron and these other towns, they're getting broken apart too. I think in this story, sometimes there's a sympathy. We look at the God, this God of Dagon, and go, yeah, of course he's getting broken. God's dealing with the idol. God's not actually dealing with the idol. The idol only has power because the idolaters gave it to him. It's just an image. It's wood and gold and bronze. It has no inherent power. What's actually happening in this passage is the idol's getting judged because the Philistines are being judged. And I think that part of what God's saying here is you're giving way too much power to the idol. The idol has no power. It's you. It's you or me or whoever it is choosing to find our value and worth, our hope and salvation in something that cannot provide any of it. So destruction and judgment destruction is just another word there for God's judgment or discipline, is used to put him, God, in his rightful place. Why does God often allow that destruction in our life? It's to bring in another hope of bringing us to a place where we are going to put God in his rightful place. Rather than putting Dagon back up on his pedestal, or rather than just sending God away, That's designed for us to cry out to him, to glorify him with our lives. It's it's dangerous sometimes when we look at things like the fires and we go, you know what, God isn't a part of that. That's just the enemy. He's brought full destruction. You know what, when we do that, we minimize God's sovereignty. The other part is it's dangerous for us to say that is direct response because God's judging you for that. We don't know that. But what we do know is that in God's discipline, in his judgment, we know that in those fires, for example, that God is using that to protect his glory. That even in the fires, God's glory is being seen. Even in the fires, God is calling people to himself. Even in the fires, God is calling people who are not listening to himself. God is proclaiming. See, judgment puts God in his rightful place as Lord over all. And there will be a day when that judgment will be final. When we have turned away from God and we will experience the full wrath of God. But here's the beauty. His judgment isn't for some sadistic purpose to torment us and make us hurt, but it's for the turning of hearts towards him. Romans 14, 11 says this, and I want to encourage you to write this passage down, Romans 14, 11. It says, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Listen, we will all face God's judgment one day. And the way to avoid God's judgment is through Jesus. It is only through the hope of Jesus. 
You see, these Ashdodites and these Ekronites and these Gathites, these groups of Philistine people, rather than turning towards God and repenting and believing on God, they just pushed them away. Even in the midst of their pushing away, God was still revealing himself. He was revealing himself in such a way that they might know him. That they might see him, that they might see his power, that they might see his glory, and they might see his majesty. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1.18, this truth. And it says this. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our hope is in Christ. And we need to see that when God brings these things into our lives, that we're not to stand back and to just go, gosh, I wonder what's happening. It should be a point in our lives where we look and go, what is God revealing? What's he doing in my own heart? What's he doing in our heart? And praise God that he's showing us so that we might not die in sin. It's an awesome thing. And finally... Romans 2, 13 through 16. It really brings to light what verse 12 is actually saying. But notice here that the city actually cries out to God. It cries out to God. See, even in their disobedience, they know who to go to. Romans 2 tells us this, 13 through 16. It says this. It says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You see, man cries out for mercy to him because God has written their law, his law, on our heart. That simple acknowledgement glorifies God. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14, we're told with idols not to play with idols. In fact, he doesn't say hang out with them, hold on to them, put them on another shelf for a little bit, and dabble with them. He says, flee idolatry. You want to deal with idols in your life, you run as far away as possible. If you find your security in something other in God, you run directly to God and run away from that thing in which you, you find security. Now, I don't mean physically, by the way. What I'm saying here, you may have to get away physically, depending on what it is. But if you're finding your security in a person, you need to run to the Lord. You need to put it there. If you're finding your security in a thing, run to the Lord. If you're finding your value and worth in something other than God, run to the Lord. Flee it. Flee the idol. 
You know why? Because if we dabble with idols, if we dabble with idols, we'll slowly begin to put it back on its pedestal. And we will give the idol power that only we can give it. May our heart this morning be, as we understand his word, as we look at this passage, may our heart be one that sees that God is protecting his glory, even through things like the fire. And that is actually an act of mercy to continue to reveal himself through his power and through his judgment so that we might turn to him and be reminded that when all men cry out to him, they're acknowledging what God has placed in their heart, which is his truth of who he is. And may we, as followers of Christ, Submit to him. May we find our hope in glory, not in the things of idols. And if we can understand his mercy that's been demonstrated through us through the work of the cross and through his patience of continuing to come to us and his initiation of relationship with him, it will be his glory that breaks the power of the idol. Not some method and not some methodology, but it will be Christ and his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, our hearts desire to rejoice in your glory. God, thank you. Thank you for continuing to reveal yourself to us. And more importantly, God, thank you for continuing to reveal our hearts to us. God, may we be reminded that in the midst of affliction and calamity, that God, you are there. That the absence of that calamity and that absence of that affliction is no more a testimony that you are present and near than when we're standing right in the midst of that affliction. Father, thank you that we have seen people cry out to you. Thank you that we've been a part of crying out to you. And thank you, Lord, that we have seen your glory. Father, may the idols no longer have power in our life. But may we focus and rejoice in your glory. And may your glory and your beauty break the chains, the pull, the comfort of those idols in our life. And we ask this in your name. Amen.